Good morning. My name is John Herbst, and I'm the director of the Dinu Patricia Eurasia Center here at the Atlanta Council. Um, I apologize in advance for the fact that we're in such a small space, but sometimes the Atlanta Council doesn't permit us to expand. I know we'd have a much larger crowd if we had more space. But you have a great program this morning. Uh, we have as our main speaker, Natalie Juresko, former finance minister of Ukraine. And um, I will not describe her further. You have a bio, because we'll get right to the program. And we have two excellent folks to help us comment on, on Natalie's uh, remarks. We have Dr. Athanasios Avernitis of the IMF. And we have Morgan William of the U.S.-Ukraine Business Council. Um, the event today is brought to you not just by the Atlantic Council, but by Morgan and the U.S.-Ukraine Business Council. We're grateful for their sponsorship of this event. And with that, I'll turn the floor over to Natalie. Thank you, Mr. Thank you. Morning. Uh, dear friends, thank you for hosting me today. Uh, it's almost six months exactly since I last spoke here uh, to discuss Ukraine's economic reforms. And Atlantic Council plays a particularly important role in Ukrainian affairs. I'm proud that as of today, if I can say this, yes, yes. I will be a part of this extraordinary institution as a non-resident senior fellow within the Dino Patricio Eurasia Center. Thank you. <clears throat> I hope I can contribute to a better understanding of the successes and challenges Ukraine faces at this very critical juncture in its history and work together with my esteemed colleagues at the Council to move this agenda forward. What exactly is that agenda? To ensure Ukraine is a democratic, rule-of-law state with a competitive economy playing an ever greater role in an ever more competitive global economy. And it should go without saying, but nonetheless I must underline, a nation at peace. In short, a country that fulfills its citizens' demands made during the Revolution of Dignity for a better life built on European values and principles. I believe the only way for Ukraine to succeed is to build a competitive economy that attracts domestic and foreign investment and creates jobs that enable the population to increase their standard of living and to build a better democracy, a market that inspires young students, that inspires young entrepreneurs and public servants to stay in Ukraine and build their future together. Have Ukrainians moved forward on that agenda? Yes, we have. And are we moving quickly enough? No, we are not. There are many reasons, but I'll focus on just three. Fatigue, vested interests, and populism. Let's step back for a moment from the theory of economic reform and my colleagues who are much more intelligent on that than I am, to the stark realities that, Ukrainian, that the Ukrainian nation has faced over the past few years. Ukraine had been experiencing economic decline practically nonstop since the global financial crisis hit in 2009, resulting in a 15% decline in GDP that year. Starting in 2012, GDP was stagnant or consistently declining throughout through 2015. And we successfully turned that around and we'll see some 1.5% GDP growth this year, with some projections of up to 2% growth next year. The political will and actions required to turn this around were decisive. First, global support in the form of a $25 billion balance of payments stabilization package, $17.5 billion from the IMF extended fund facility that we negotiated in spring of 2015, and $7.5 billion of bilateral and multilateral commitments from our partners. Second, fiscal adjustment. 
where we reduced the overall general government deficit from over 10% of GDP in 2014 to just over 2% of GDP in 2015, all while allocating 5% of our GDP to defense and security. We increased long overdue excise duties, we removed some of the tax privileges, we broadened the tax base, while reducing a very uncompetitive payroll tax by half to begin a process of deshadowization of salaries. Third, we committed to a debt restructuring, in which we did a debt operation that A, avoided default, B, reduced the overall private external debt load by 20%, C, pushed out the principal payments for years to give us breathing room, and D, restored our debt sustainability, all within the parameters of the IMF program, providing us an additional $15 billion in balance of payments relief for the four years. That brought us to the total $40 billion package that was described to close the balance of payments gap for the next four years. The fourth area was massive reform in the energy sector, including raising household gas tariffs now with, with the recent uh, decision of the recent government to full cost recovery as of this heating season, which has resulted in a reduction of energy consumption and energy imports, as well as a reduction in the deficit, always financed by the state, of our national oil and gas company, Naftogaz. That deficit was the equivalent of $10 billion in 2014 and is now projected to be zero in 2016. Taken with the global support that we received about $1 billion for financing gas purchases, we have also been able to purchase gas at seasonally low prices, store it in our vast underground storage tanks, and maximize the use of the reverse flow from Europe. As a result, for practically a year, we have not had to import any gas from Russia's Gazprom. We eliminated all of the intermediaries that siphoned off tens of billions of dollars in the gas trade and removed the corruption associated with that cash flow. Laws on the natural gas market were adopted, resulting in the planned unbundling on, of, of Naftogaz in accordance with European standards. And the law recently on independent energy regulator was adopted by the RADA. The fifth area that I'll point out is massive work to rehabilitate, rehabilitate the banking system. In a very fragmented and very weak banking system, some 80 of 180 banks have seen their banking licenses suspended because of their weakness, and that's about 25% of the banking system's assets. I'm only naming a few because, frankly, the list is too long to list all of what's been done. Suffice it to say that the reform, this reform process has been the longest and the most successful Ukraine has ever experienced having lasted almost three years, achieving a third tranche of the IMF program just a few weeks ago, and spanning two governments. The results of these heroic efforts on the part of the entire political leadership of Ukraine include real growth in GDP, increased local currency deposits in the banking system, which is a sign of renewed confidence in the banking system, reduced inflation, gradual reduction of lending rates, and an expansion of credit. This is the Ukrainian macroeconomic miracle and it has occurred despite the extraordinarily massive shock of illegal occupation of some 7% of our territory, representing 20% of our GDP, despite the tragic human costs of war, which includes some 10,000 dead, 20,000 wounded, almost 2 million internally displaced people, and despite the Kremlin's hybrid war, which consists not only of military action, but also cyber attacks, massive propaganda war, and domestic political interference. I would go so far as to say there's no country in the world that has been in such dire circumstances and yet turned around the economy in such a short period of time. Nonetheless, 
These reforms are not yet irreversible, and much is yet to be done to ensure that they are. That's the big picture. But honestly, the citizens of Ukraine are fatigued, and rightfully so. The reforms that I noted have had wonderful macroeconomic effects, which enabled us to turn things around, avoid a deeper and more painful financial crisis. But the immediate effects on the population have been painful. Closing banks affected depositors, who had to wait to recover their deposits guaranteed by the Deposit Guarantee Fund, and even lost amounts that were greater than the amount guaranteed by that fund. The initial effect of the increase in household tariffs increased inflation in 2015 to a high in April of 61% year-on-year. In effect, 2015 was a very painful year for the average citizen, and they have the right to be fatigued. But not only Ukraine's people are fatigued, so are the reformers in government. Those who are pushing this veritable rock uphill against all odds, against and despite vested interests and populace. When I came into government in 2014 in December, Ukraine was in such a deep and extreme financial crisis that the political will to make change was strong and broad throughout the political class. Everyone understood that measures had to be taken resolutely. However, two things have happened since then. First, we succeeded in averting the crisis <laughs> and we stabilized the economy. And as a result, there is a reduced sense of urgency of reform for many. And second, at the same time, some of the measures we've already taken and those that are next on the agenda pose real threats to the vested interests. Take, for example, the very successful introduction of transparency into the work of the state. This includes e-data, which the Ministry of Finance has put the entire treasury online, Prozoro, which the Ministry of Economy has introduced as an online e-procurement system, the e-declaration system that recently went online, uh, requiring all civil servants to declare their assets and income. Introduction of these tools is critical to making government more responsible, transparent, giving civil society the tools to question, investigate potential wrongdoing, or simply just poor policy decisions. However, the success of these reforms is often slowed or limited by continued pushback from the vested interests. Prozoro could do so much more if mandatory use in local government was complete and thorough as it is in the central government. Given the financial benefits to transparent and competitive pro procurement, one can only assume that local government has not yet fully complied because vested interests are blocking the road. Not dissimilarly, the efforts that began in 2015 to increase transparency in state-owned enterprises has slowed. International audits were required of the top 46 state-owned enterprises. Only 24 of those audits are complete almost two years later. Another 12 are underway, and 10 appear to be blocked altogether. Again, one can only assume that this is due to vested interests. So fatigue is one issue. Vested interests thwarting the changes that are already in motion and smothering those yet to come is a second. But I can't emphasize enough the third element that is slowing the reform agenda, and that is populism. Populism, of course, is not unique to Ukraine. However, the risk in Ukraine is greater especially because reforms to date are not irreversible, are not yet irreversible. Political parties, and particularly those not represented in the ruling coalition and government, see an opportunity to seize on the fatigue of citizens and reformers banding together with the vested interests who oppose deeper reforms. Populists throw out cheap, easy answers that sound fabulous. Domestic gas should be free. And fool the public into believing that there's some other way to rebuild the economy. 
This is particularly dangerous in Ukraine because of the regular threat of early parliamentary elections. Thus, the speed of complex and difficult reforms suffers because of the real fear that populists will use such reforms to push a political agenda that will ultimately precipitate early elections and completely erase the reform agenda, reversing the enormous progress made to date. Fatigue, vested interests, and populism. So what can be done to push ahead? What can be done to renew and increase the incentives for continuing and accelerating structural reforms beyond macroeconomic stabilization? What can be done, first, to increase and broaden the political will to fight the vested interests? Second, to provide the tools reformers and civil society need to move forward. Three, to serve the citizens directly. And fourth, remove the basis for the populace, false truths, and avoid a populist backlash that would only bring further disarray and decline. I believe we must revitalize support for this reform process and the reformers to build on the strength of what is a truly uniquely vibrant and dedicated civil society, one unlike anywhere else in the former Soviet Union. We must now win over the hearts and minds of Ukrainian society. This can be done if the international community comes together and engages boldly, like it did earlier in 2014-15. I just lost a page here somewhere, so just have to. There's a good reason for putting page numbers on there. Um, this time, though, what I'm suggesting is not to simply close the balance of payments gap or rebuild central bank reserves or solve a budget deficit problem. What I'm suggesting is an international consortium of our multilateral and bilateral partners providing Ukraine a substantial $25 billion five-year infrastructure investment fund conditioned on the structural reforms that lie ahead, everything from state-owned enterprise privatization to education and healthcare reform, reform of the Tax and Customs Administration, and more. This consortium would include the EBRD, the World Bank, the European Investment Bank, KFW, our bilateral and multilateral part partners. It could also include PPP projects. There's no reason this has to be limited solely to the public sector. It needs to be large enough to create and maintain political will for the reforms outlined and underlying those funds. It needs to be investment not in the budget or the NBU reserves, but into real infrastructure, systems, and assets such as roads, bridges, river transport systems, hardware and software to revamp and modernize government, including tax and customs. And moreover, a substantial chunk of these funds needs to go into modernization of hub schools, hospitals, and those systematic areas that will change and improve the daily lives of every citizen. Monies flowing into the budget and the NBU reserves are invisible to the average citizen. Schools, hospitals, roads, and e-government e services are tangible. They directly serve the people, touching the lives on a daily basis. And by marrying a large infrastructure investment fund in Ukraine with the existing macroeconomic IMF program, we will, in essence, create a complementary dual track, one that continues to build the macroeconomic framework necessary to revitalize the economy, and another that shows the people of Ukraine that these sometimes painful reforms are worthwhile and their lives are getting better. If there is one lesson I learned from my time serving as minister, it is that time is of the essence. We need to rapidly be building support among the people before the populace and vested interests are able to significantly slow or even stop the reform efforts. 
a public-private investment, investment infrastructure fund to bring $25 billion of investment into the public infrastructure conditioned on structural reforms would be a very effective tool to create political will, to support the reformers in civil society who are working 24-7 to rebuild the country, and to shut down the populace attempting to dismantle the huge efforts that have been made to date. Ukraine is a country of tremendous resilience. Ukraine is a country of tremendous courage. Ukraine is a country of tremendous strength. It has proven that it can and will conduct very complex and often very painful reforms. Rather than letting the steam of this engine dissipate, I suggest the international community fully engage and reinvigorate its support for the structural reform process with an infrastructure investment fund that will make the people of Ukraine our allies in this critically important process and ensure the irreversibility of our successes to date. Thank you. Mess. Natalie, that was terrific. And just so you hear, you've heard for the first time about the Juresco Infrastructure Investment Fund. This is a headline, so I want you to take this away. Uh, Dr. Athanasios, your comments, please. Um, thank you. Thank you. Let me first um, thank you for the invitation to be here on this, uh, on this panel. And, uh, and also, it's a pleasure to be here with, uh, with Natalie, somebody who we worked very closely together over the last uh, a year and a half, and also with Morgan, uh, someone also who, who knows Ukraine perhaps better than uh, most of us uh, following Ukraine for such a long period of time. Um, excellent presentation. I, I don't know how, what else um, I can add to this, but perhaps I can, I can highlight a few of the points that, uh, that Natalie already mentioned and, and start by, by the impressive progress that has been achieved over the last year and a half, two years in Ukraine. One needs to go back to late 2013 to actually people uh, to put uh, things in context. In late 2013, Ukraine had uh, a stagnating economy, uh, very large external imbalances, very large fiscal imbalances, um, a, an economy uh, a, a, that was uh, not productive, uh, a state-owned enterprise sector that is unreformed. Um, and, uh, and on top of that, in late 2013, one uh, Ukraine was hit by, by significant shocks. Um, uh, the, the, the conflict in the East, uh, the significant terms of trade, uh, the deterioration that, uh, that followed. Um, it really puts like, you know, the policymakers at you know, one of the, the greatest challenges that one in, in government could ever face. And, uh, and then one needs to contrast that situation with what, where Ukraine is now. Uh, and I think it's not only so, like, you know, what Natalie said, so, like, you know, economic stabilization and growth, and, and, and so, like, you know, we are in a much, so Ukraine is in a much stabler, better place now. But, but that came with, with some significant decisions, policy decisions of the government. And I want to mention two or three, because so, you know, one is, um, these results reflect uh, the decisive uh, efforts of, of the government uh, in some areas that have been taboo in Ukraine for, for many years. Let, uh, the, the decision to float the exchange rate. Uh, Ukraine always, always you know, was very reluctant to actually do that. 
in 2013 that had resulted in a very overvalued exchange rate, a very uncompetitive economy, and, and shocks, especially like country uh, commodity dependent, uh, could go from time to time in boom and bust cycles. And, and the decision to float exchange rate uh, um, was, you know, it was painful for many. It did raise inflation, but I think with the right policies, inflation is down, the exchange rate is stable, uh, reserves are being replenished, and, uh, and, and Ukraine is much better served than before. The fiscal adjustment, uh, I, you know, I, I've seen very few countries that have gone to, to such a successful fiscal adjustment from a deficit, as Natalie said, of 10%, bringing it down to 2% in a matter of, of a year, year and a half. Um, that so like, you know, includes also so like, you know, the bold decision to move energy prices to cost recovery. Um, Ukraine was, as you all know, extremely hesitant to move prices to market. And, uh, and, and that was creating significant fiscal deficits uh, in the order of 3 to 5%. And, and, and the decision to move from these untargeted subsidies to those, uh, you know, it's a, it's a regressive subsidy and subsidizes the most well-off, the largest consumers of energy, uh, to more targeted system. We put all of these subsidies inside the budget and, and try to do it you know, to those that are more vulnerable. I think that was a significant you know, uh, policy decision uh, at the time. And then uh, Natalie also mentioned the, the effort to clean up the banking system, to make it a stronger uh, banking system and, and, and a banking system that serves the population and not only it's, you know, the, the bank owners. Um, uh, and beyond that, some first steps in, in restructuring the economy, reducing licenses and regulations, and all of that. All of that was together brought the stability that, that we see now in Ukraine. Um, so significant, significant efforts from, from the policymakers with some support from, from the international community that they came to, to support these efforts. Um, has all been done? And Natalie was very clear, not. Uh, there is a lot of things that still need to be done. And, uh, and let me focus on two, three areas that Natalie also uh, clearly mentioned. One is the need to, to make this economy grow. Uh, it, it's a fact that after the crisis, now GDP per capita in Ukraine is just 20% of that in, 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 in Europe. Uh, the gap between Ukraine and even its regional partners, uh, it's just widening. So it's, it's a need not only to stop the crisis, but now it's, like, you know, it's, it's a, an urgent need to, to put the economy in a growth and a, on a f and sustainable and fast growth. Um, this needs to also be, make Ukraine an attractive place for investment. And I think uh, one of the areas where we, we are focusing on is <clears throat> the rule of law, which Ukraine has always been a problem area. Um, make sure so like, you know, that there is more transparency. Uh, the institutions have been set up. Uh, you probably are familiar with the new efforts to set up so like, you know, the, the national anti-corruption agencies. Um, Increased transparency with the declaration of the incomes of high-level officials. Um, reforms of the state-owned enterprises. Ukraine has 1,700 state-owned enterprises, most of them loss-making, inefficient. Um, and breeding grounds for corruption in many of them. So SOE reform is critically important to, to move ahead, including with privatization. Uh, we've seen over the last year and a half the difficulties of actually having given one big enterprise to be privatized. 
Um, so making the climate in Ukraine attractive to investment, private investment and business, it's, it's, it's still a, a challenge. Um, continuing the efforts to, to rehabilitate, repair the banking system. I think so, you know, this is a, um, efforts, no one can do that in, in a very short period of time. This is a multi-year effort. But it's important to make sure that the banking system continues to provide or is able to provide credit to uh, support the economy. I think this is another area where the efforts continue, uh, need to continue. And, and of course, continue with, uh, with uh, strong uh, economic policies. Uh, fiscal policy now is, um, is much stronger than before, but it needs to continue because public debt is still very high. And, and we need to continue, the Ukraine needs to continue the effort of bringing public debt down because that creates the, the environment for, for, for uh, investment and for the private sector to have more confidence in the country. Um, so there are, there are many things to be done, um, uh, things that we have touched, but also you know, land reform, which continues to be you know, an area where things are moving very slowly. Um, but as Natalie said, so like, you know, the potential, all of us who have been here, who have been following Ukraine for so long, uh, are true believers that so like, you know, Ukraine has a huge potential and has not been yet able to, to reach that potential. Um, but, but with the right policies and with the right efforts, uh, certainly it's, uh, it's for Ukraine to, to reach it. So thank you. Thank you. Um, Morgan? Thank you, John. The U.S. Ukraine Business Council wants to thank you for the opportunity to co-sponsor this uh, very important event. We're always happy, Orsch, when the Atlantic Council sponsors something related to business, economics, uh, investments, and not just totally foreign policy and Minsk and the EU, and, but they're all important to, to the mix. But, John, thank you very much uh, that we can focus on economic reforms. Uh, thank you, Natalie, for all the great work that you've done for over 20 years. We look forward to the next 20 years and uh, your new proposals and to make all those things come true. Uh, Ukraine is, uh, has some great pluses to it now because of what Natalie did. And, of course, we want to thank the IMF for hanging in there. And, of course, we want to thank John Herbst that he just talked the IMF into putting another billion dollars out there. And the U.S. government just put another billion dollars out there. So uh, to keep everything uh, moving, moving forward. But after 25 years, we need to take a close look at where we are. And business decision makers, whether they're in corporations, financial institutions, or investment institutions, are taking a close look at Ukraine. They're saying that after 25 years, yes, a lot of progress has been made. Last, a lot of things have been uh, accomplished, just like Natalie has talked about. Uh, but they're saying, okay, let's take a hard look at Ukraine, where, where they are, where we think they're going, and how competitive are they with other countries where we can also put our money. And after 25 years, they're saying, yes, we're glad for the progress. Less, let's chalk up a lot of marks. But is it enough to get us off of dead center to put more money in Ukraine to take more risk? The answer is no. They said no in 2014. They said no in 2015. They said no basically in 2016. And now what we're hearing from most of the companies, the international ones, particularly in Ukraine, is that these decision makers outside of Ukraine 
are basically saying we don't, we're not building a lot of funds into Ukraine for 2017. Maybe we'll think about it for 2018, 2019. That doesn't work for Ukraine. That doesn't work for what Natalie said. That doesn't work to get us out of the financial and business crisis that we're in in Ukraine today. And to me, the number one crisis that Ukraine is in today is the business and economic development crisis because that's where you try to get out of the hole you're in. That's where you create jobs. That's where you bring in income. That's where you create taxes. And, and when business moves forward, then Ukraine can start congratulating itself more and saying, yeah, we've got to the place where the business community and the investors and the financial institutions are going to put in more. As far as the business community is concerned, the number two, the two strongest aspects of, the, of Ukraine today is its civil society and its business. Business and civil society are fighting for reform. They're fighting for change. They're fighting for a new Ukraine harder than everybody else and, and much harder than the government. We got to have, continue to have a strong civil society. They've got to hold the government uh, accountable for what they're doing even more than they have in the past. And business is fighting every day through their business operations, through their own attorneys, through hired attorneys, through their interaction with the government to try to defend their right to do business in a kind of a normal business atmosphere and defend their right to private property. They're out there on the front lines fighting hard every day. And we must say that one of the best things about Ukraine is that after the uh, revolution of dignity and Mr. Putin, most of the national businesses didn't leave. They stayed. They were great humanitarians. Most all of them helped the families in the conflict zone that worked for them. Most of them moved them into other parts of Ukraine and gave them jobs. And they hunkered down and said, we're going to survive and we're going to stay in Ukraine. And we know so many companies that have been there for 20 years. They're not going anywhere, but they're kind of in a holding pattern. They're circling the airport. They're sitting on their money. They're just trying to survive and stay put and position themselves for the future, which is not going to get Ukraine where it needs to go. So what are the companies saying? It's not just one thing. It's kind of a package. Like Natalie said, it's not just going to be one magic one that solves this problem. The number one issue we get from all the people controlling the money going into Ukraine is we are sick and tired of, after 25 years, being the victims of a corrupt court and legal system. We're so tired of that. We're tired of legal cases going on five, seven years. We're tired of harassment. We're tired of criminal charges. We're just tired of the, the, many of the judges that our companies say got paid off to make decisions against them are still in place. We're just tired. We're tired of being a victim of the bureaucracy. We're tying a big victim of corruption, the tax system, uh, privatization's not moving forward, land privatization's not moving forward, and they're saying, okay, we're gonna take an A look. We need to see more. We need to see a critical mass of reforms which some people say there's been a critical mass, but business community is not saying there's been a critical mass in terms of us taking more risk in Ukraine. And uh, they got to see a package. And so what they're getting kind of fatigued about is they don't see enough political will now to move 
the package forward to make more major reforms and to do the kind of things that makes Ukraine uh, less risky from their point of view and also makes it competitive. We just had a, a gas company come in the other day. They said, we're going to put a lot of money in Hungary because their gas tariffs only 10%. Ukraine brought theirs down from 50 to 30 or something like that. Yeah. They said, this is no, this is not competitive at all uh, in m many, many areas. And so they're putting their money other places. Uh, quickly, of course, there's, there's the uh, situation with land. Um, and because they've punted for 25 years, it's gotten very critical, and it's not going to be solved easily, and the RADA just punted one more time to not make land a marketable commodity. Ukraine is the greatest asset that Ukraine has. 28 million hectares of agricultural land were owned by collectives, and today about half of these uh, new landowners who got most of that land possessing about 14 million hectares are pensioners who lease their land to private agri-firms. Now this amount, about six million hectares, are leased by large agri-holdings on the average area of about 75,000 hectares. And of course, land is not a marketable commodity. It's not an asset which can be used to move Ukraine forward. And how you get from where they are today to the future is who knows? I haven't seen a good piece of legislation. You don't want the RADA just to throw out the uh, moratorium and throw it out to the crooks and, and all the dirty money that wants to come in and take all the land. So it's a uh, huge problem. So to, to sum up, we just have to say that uh, the anti-corruption court system, which they still delay in putting it in place effectively, is number one. They've got to reform the judicial and prosecution systems. There may be some kind of amnesty developed like in some other countries to try to get rid of the past and into the future. You need to remove the blanket immunity that the members of the RADA has, and you need to privatize state enterprises. There's about 3,500 of them. Every year we get a new book about this thick for the state privatization fund. It says we're going to privatize all these businesses. We just normally just throw them away. There's nothing real about it. They don't do it. And this last privatization in the port, I talked to one guy from a major accounting firm. He said, I told four of my clients, don't even go near there. Don't touch it. The price isn't right. There's too many intangibles, too many undeterminables. And of course, it didn't sell. So the business community is very, still very optimistic about Ukraine. And actually, we know of millions of billions of dollars ready to go into Ukraine and ports and rivers and railroads, all kinds of other things. But we've got to see more from this government and business and EU, United States, and the civil society has got to do more to hold this business, uh, this uh, um, government uh, feet to the fire. Thank you. Okay, uh, just, just to quickly sum up what you've heard. First, from one of Ukraine's premier reformers, you have a new idea for moving the country forward. Then you've got a, a sound and balanced perspective from, from the IMF regarding what's been achieved, what needs to be achieved. And finally, you've heard some of the frustrations that see from the international business community about Ukraine's reform process. With that, I'll hand it over to Natalie to respond to the respondents. So I, I can't say that I disagree with, with anything that's been said. And, and I'm one of those people who's probably the least patient. As I said, I think my lesson learned is time is of the essence, and we all need to move more quickly. The investment paradigm, I think, 
needs a major change. And I think in order to really change the perspective of investors in a significant way, in a quick way, there has to be something that changes the entire field of view for investors. So an example would be land reform, which would change the agriculture sector overnight. Now, when I talked about the infrastructure fund, just to kind of marry the two, if a part of this was to go into a uh, 21st century land cadaster that was based on GPS, exact uh, land uh, measurement and land uh, registration, we would eliminate much of the populist arguments about, you know, this is all going to get stolen, and it could be done relatively rapidly with the resources of that kind of investment infrastructure fund tied to land reform moving forward. You eliminate the populist argument. Yes, the vested interests remain, but you're, you're getting rid of the arguments that they use against it. So land reform is one of those investment paradigm shifts. State-owned enterprise, massive. Get rid of all, all that can be privatized or liquidated rapidly. So yes, Odessa port site is important, and they just postponed it to the second week of December. But it's not just Odessa port site. At this point, Ukraine needs to show, to, to shift the investment paradigm, that it's no longer interested in maintaining this massive group of potentially corrupt, certainly state capture types of entities. So, and, 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 and theoretically, the Ukrainian government could put the, re the proceeds from this privatization into and marry it into this investment infrastructure fund, showing that they too have a commitment to this, not just asking our bilateral and multilateral friends. So it could fit directly. A third paradigm shift for investment would be related to, and some countries have done it, while we're going through judicial reform, which was adopted and constitutionally effective as of September 30th, and you know, we'll be changing 8,000 judges over the next three years, we'll be reducing the number of courts, we'll be eliminating much of the immunity. There's a lot of good things in that constitutional judicial reform, but it's going to take time. If we want a paradigm shift now for investors, then perhaps in the interim we need to establish a court with outside judges ruling on the basis of Ukrainian law for foreign investors, but give them an immediate sense of contract enforceability under Ukrainian law that would be a paradigm shift until the judicial reform comes to fruition. So ideas like that, I think, and I'm just taking three of them, could help to kind of get investors to say, wow, this is not just gradual reform. This is not just saving the economy, which I truly believe you cannot underestimate, and business can't either. I was in private equity for 20 years. The volatility of the currency alone was killing business, not to mention inflation. So businesses need positive movement, plus you know, the past is the past. You gotta, what are you doing for me today and what's going to happen tomorrow? But the, but the bottom line is, you know, I think for investors to have a significant frame of mind change, Ukraine has to do something big to change that. Oh, thank you. Uh, Dr. Arvanitas, I want to put you on the spot if you don't mind. Uh, Natalie's idea for an inf infrastructure fund, um, if that were to be implemented, what would that do in your judgment to economic growth in Ukraine? It obviously would help deal with the problem of populism, but would it be positive for the long-term growth of the country? Look, Natalie is talking about so like, you know, a number of things in this infrastructure fund, uh, and suddenly no one disagrees that Ukraine has deep uh, structural infrastructure needs. Um, but let me try to bring so like, you know, the two uh, thoughts together, uh, what Morgan said and also what Natalie is saying. Um, certainly, the future growth in Ukraine depends really on, on a very strong and vibrant private sector. Very strong. Uh, pri uh, private sector. 
And, and I think the, the, where the strong effort still needs to be is to create the conditions for the private sector to play the role that it needs to play in the country. Um, investment is very, very low in Ukraine. Uh, FDI, Ukraine has received only a fraction of the FDI that Poland, Czech, Slovak, all over the other countries in the region uh, have, have received. And I think this reflects back into the very weak business climate that has been in Ukraine for many years. Ukraine has skilled labor force. It has the proximity to many, uh, to, to, to Western Europe, to, to, to advanced countries in Europe. And it needs to take, and it has a very fertile land. Uh, it has huge comparative advantages that it needs to, take, to, to, to try to take advantage of. And I think that would be, in my mind, so, you know, the future uh, for Ukraine, so, you know, with, with enough support for better infrastructure in roads and highways and bridges uh, in, uh, in order to not only to show to the population that actually their life is improving, but also to create the conditions for the private sector to, to come in and play its role. I, I think that eventually will be the, the solution for Ukraine. Okay, I have one more question and then we will turn it over to the audience. Uh, Natalie, your idea for how you could make land reform um, possible politically. Uh, do you think, though, that actually the proposal you offered would shut down the populist argument? I think it's a tool that has little to no risk and at least helps the reformers push it forward. So if you, I'm, I'm not suggesting providing funding without conditionality. You know, you'll find many government officials who don't believe in conditionality. I'm not one of them. I think conditionality is a tool that helps reformers helps civil society that supports reforms. I think it gives them the tools, and I think it helps move the process forward. I think it also helps, we've seen recently, from uh, processes moving backwards. So we've had situations where conditionalities help to keep corporate governance at Naftogaz, for example, in place. So I, I think it works, uh, and I think it, um, it, it's a low-risk option. I think that uh, if the Ukrainian people knew that their land rights were safe with a again, very efficient uh, land cadaster, they would have a different perspective on whether or not they're going to be you know, ripped off or their land is going to be stolen or someone's going to take advantage of them. By doing that, you can also bring the facts to bear. How many millions of hectares are in state usage and how they're being used? How many millions of hectares are pies or titled, the, 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 the USAID gave out the title to every individual, are actually already passed on in these 26 years? And what's happened to their title? And, 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 and what's happened to those families who, or, or families who are in their 70s or 80s and can't wait another 2, 5, 10, or 20 years? And so having the data simply from an accurate land cadaster will help the arguments to move land reform without, I think, major risk. OK, thank you. Um, OK, we'll take questions from the audience. Vitaly. <coughs> please identify yourself. Uh, well, Ambassador, thank you so much for this opportunity. I'm uh, Vitaly Tarasuk, Head of Economic Office at the Embassy of Ukraine. Well, this is a you know, distinguished uh, panel, and uh, you cannot wish for a better panel to discuss the issues facing Ukraine today. Well, uh, thank you for that. And I uh, you know, very much agree with many of the things that were said today. And uh, you know, because Ukraine has achieved uh, more than perceived, but of course less than we aspired for during the last two and a half years. And uh, as Natalie Dress correctly said, I mean,
mean, the list is too long to name all of the reforms that have been implemented. And that's why we've brought a book, a uh, report book on Ukraine's reform. I see some of you already have them just, you know, when you exit, I hope there are some examples still left. Just have a deeper look what's inside in each sphere of uh, the economy, what's, what's been done. Uh, you know, among successful examples of reform implementation, often uh, such countries as Georgia, Poland, Slovakia, Singapore are being mentioned. But it's also, I think, worth remembering that it took them at least three to six years before those results became visible. But in the meantime, they were actively criticized for slow action and uh, insignificant results of those reforms. And I think this is the situation that Ukraine faces right now. So we've, we've done some things, and thanks a lot to reformers like Natalie Jurasko that Ukraine is progressing and achieving uh, reforms. Uh, just finalized the uh, second review with the IMF, received the loan guarantee from the United States. All of them are condition-based. So that clearly uh, sends a signal that Ukraine is reforming, because otherwise there won't be uh, these things happening. Just last week, we had the six US-Ukraine Trade and Investment Council. And uh, at the opening, Amb Ambassador Froman, the head of uh, USTR, he mentioned that this is uh, for the first time in, in Ukraine's history that Ukraine uh, has relations with the IMF on such an advanced level of cooperation. And I agree with Ambassador, because this is for the first time we've moved uh, you know, along the road for such a long time and achieved so many results that we've already achieved. Of course, as we move on, uh, you know, the road of reforms becomes more and more steeper and more things to be done, you know, and difficult. But as Tanas has said, you know, we still continue to do taboo reforms because in, in the next, you know, uh, review, we have to achieve even greater and more challenging reforms. Like, you know, we have to work on the pension reform, on the land reform, on the fiscal service reform, to do the privatization. So all of this is within our program. And just answering what Morgan said, of course, I mean, privatization is important. And the government wants to, to do it just, you know, just to do it right. We cannot afford it to do it, you know, uh, not properly because it would send the wrong signal. So it's better just to be more prepared and then to do it, you know, in one go uh, and uh, openly and transparently. You know, uh, the road of reform, you know, for Ukraine has not been a, a cakewalk. It's been difficult because we are facing war. We are facing all the elites who are trying to do uh, the things in their own way. Uh, we are facing inefficient post-Soviet economic system that needs to be reformed. So a lot of things, you know, that Ukraine still needs to do. And this is not just, I mean, the time, of course, to, to rest on what's been achieved. This is, of course, to move ahead and to do more. And I completely agree with the proposal that Natalie Dresko just said, that we need as much support as we can get from the international community, from the international bodies to move ahead. So I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure that Ukraine will walk uh, the walk, will not just do the talk. Thank you so much, Ambassador. Thank you. Okay, uh, Miroslava. Uh, thank you very much for this presentation and for this um, positive outlook of Ukrainian reforms. Please I would like identify to, yourself. Uh, I'm Miroslava Gungadze, Voice of America. I would like to ask you about your idea, uh, this $25 billion um, consortium. Um, how did you calculate it, that $25 billion? Uh, where is the numbers coming from? 
And uh, second, did you already have uh, or had a discussion with your partners, let's say IMF and other EBRD, other uh, financial institution to, uh, and how, did, how do they look at this idea? Thank you. So it is not a scientific number. <clears throat> it is a number that I think um, is substantial enough to have political weight in Ukraine. Um, I think it's a number that's a target, and I don't know that it's necessarily something that has to be fulfilled to the dime or, uh, or not. Um, I think it's a number that reflects the type of uh, infrastructure needs that the country has. The EBRD has, in a good year, been able to put about a billion dollars of uh, uh, funding into Ukraine, 2015 as an example, not 2016. Um, the World Bank has a portfolio of loans that uh, the minister just announced they'll be looking at closing some of them down because they're not being drawn down at, at, the, at the right pace. I think a big part of this idea, and no, I have not discussed it with anyone. This is the first time I've discussed this anywhere. Um, a big part of this idea is that it would have to have a very, very centralized project uh, management uh, unit uh, because Ukraine has, unfortunately, a history of not being able to put proper projects together for the lenders. So whether it's EIB or EBRD, often what they're saying is there aren't good projects. Similarly, there has to be, and the reason I say five years, is there has to be a commitment to a long-term plan such that when you have a change in government, which happens every year, year and a half in Ukraine, that you don't have less interest in those projects and the resulting, for example, non-drawdown of loans that were entered into three, five years ago at the World Bank. So it would have to be centrally coordinated it, um, and by both, I think, you know, the consortium of lenders and, and participants, but also by the Ukrainian government with a long-term commitment to change. I want to make clear that I'm not talking only about infrastructure in the typical term infrastructure. I'm talking about as well systems. One of the things that we worked on, and my, my former Deputy Minister of Finance is in the audience, now the representative uh, at the World Bank, Roman Kachut. One of the things we worked on was how do we create efficiency, for example, in our social payments in Ukraine. We don't have a single comprehensive database. We don't have a single system that would enable us to avoid fraud in an effective and efficient way. There are 21st century methods that we looked into then, things that are being used in India with retina scans, things that are being done through IBM in other countries that enable you to um, make sure that everyone is receiving in a much more convenient way than standing in line in offices and waiting for payments uh, through debit cards and other mechanisms, as well as avoiding fraud. The savings from that kind of infrastructural system that could be part of an infrastructure fund like this could fuel and finance additional payments and social um, to those who are truly in need. As a Minister of Finance, I can tell you, Ukraine's not going to have the money in the budget to invest in this type of infrastructure in the near future, not even in the medium-term future. Every time there's going to be any wiggle room in the budget, I'll be frank with you, it will probably go into wages for civil servants. We have incredibly deplorable salaries in civil service, teachers, hospitals. And so the, the, the argument will always, for, for a computer system or, or, or a 21st century social safety net system will always come later in politics than increasing the, the pensions of a population that has the lowest pensions in all of Europe. And, and I can't even make the argument. But if you marry this to pe parametric pension reform, for example, if you marry this infrastructure to the conditionality of those funds, you're also, I think, creating the savings and efficiency and you're enabling some of these things that have been very hard to do, but people get to see the results. 
And I think that's part of what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to find a way to marry um, you know, fighting the populism, creating political will, and taking away with that sum, which you asked me, why 25? Not just the needs of the country, but take away the people in the vested interest in populism who will say, oh, that's just so little money, who cares? It's not worth us making these very difficult decisions. It's got to be substantial. OK, thank you. Please identify yourself. No, no, no. <clears throat> not sure if I need this microphone in such a small room. Um, I'm Steve Powell, managing director of Sino Powell Capital. You all know what capital is. Uh, I'm Powell. Sino is a prefix meaning China. And I'm also a Canadian citizen. So I'm wondering, uh, I have two related questions. What is the role of other countries in what you have planned? China, Canada, for example. Related to that is we have a project that we were originally pursuing in Ukraine in infrastructure. We went to Exim Bank for financing because we were exporting uh, large US products. They won't do business in Ukraine. They directed us to Kazakhstan. So the project will go through Kazakhstan and then indirectly back to Ukraine. So there's another country that perhaps we could involve in something that goes beyond just the United States. So the question is, what do you have planned with other countries aside from the United States to achieve your goals. Thank no, you. There's no question the United States could never take on a $25 billion five-year process. This is never my idea to limit this to the United States. Uh, if, if that was the case, it would be dead on arrival. Uh, it needs to be, as I said, all our bilateral partners. In fact, I would argue that we need to move from the G7 support to G20 support, to the, with perhaps one exception. Uh, <laughs> the, um, although if they're interested, they will more than happy. Uh, but so, I think, I think uh, Canada clearly has been supportive of Ukraine, has provided us with uh, loans in the past. Uh, what, what I'm, not, I'm not in any way suggesting it should be only the United States. Um, I, on the issue of XM, it, it's all of the export credit agencies are critical for Ukraine right now, and I know the business sector will say that. But it is a matter of time as Ukraine improves its credit ratings. I mean, we're on that path. It unfortunately doesn't happen overnight, but you know, a colleague of mine is here from Lazard. The debt restructuring that we did was not only of the government's uh, external private debt, but also of several of our state banks, several of our state-owned enterprises, Ukrainian Railway. And um, I think that all helps us move on that path. Now, you know, we need to continue and accelerate and provide confidence that this is going to continue at a pace that gives the export credit agencies the ability to open, reopen for Ukraine. Thank you. Um, right here. <coughs> Elaine Sereo, Associate Rector of Wisconsin International Ukraine University in Kiev, Ukraine. Thank you, Natalie, for this. And congratulations, and we're, welcome. Let me be one of the first to welcome you to the Atlantic Council. <laughs> the, uh, what, a, what a wonderful contribu contribution you'll be able to make to this excellent institution. Uh, I really uh, truly appreciated the whole strategic thinking, comprehensive thinking that you're bringing to the table with your consortium approach. Uh, you made a number of very important points in, in course with IMF and uh, with US-Ukraine Business Council. I would like to ask, uh, you pointed out the issue of management, and then you linked it to uh, a point about how to maybe jumpstart uh, some of the legal issues by having a separate private 
court that has U.S. that is Ukrainian based on Ukrainian law, of course, and that uh, could bring in uh, international experts that could address the issue on behalf of Ukraine through their laws, so that things could move faster. Um, to be able to provide for that kind of the resources to do that, uh, would something like what has been pledged to Ukraine by the US, presently there has been $555 million pledged to Ukraine by the US government uh, since March of this year. And very little, if any, of that has been tapped. Uh, some of it is 220 million, I believe, for specifically for assistance. I think that would go a long way to provide resources because of the way the U.S. funding has to work through. That I could see that as being the uh, the fuel for such an engine. And do you see that as a possibility? Sure. I think all the technical assistance funds would go a long way to helping finance that type of court. I think. The primary issue for that type of court that I've described that's been used in other countries is kind of Ukrainian national will and political will to do it. And I think that's real. I don't think the funding will be the challenge there. I think the challenge will be this is something very unique. It's rare. It has been successful in other countries. And we'd have to create the political will, perhaps with conditionality, to make something like that happen. Investors would have to demand it and so on. I, I think funding would be available. Um, and I don't think it's a terribly expensive proposition. Anyone else want to comment on that? <coughs> Just want to say that the private business community has an enormous amount of funds for Ukraine. If they would move forward, like Natalie has said, need to jumpstart. There's got to be something significant. And these programs are very important. But in the long run, the billions and billions of dollars is going to have to come from the private sector. They don't borrow at 30 percent. They borrow six, seven, eight, nine, ten percent. And we know of billions ready to go into Ukraine in various projects. We've got to get the government to implement what Natalie's talking about significantly to get their attention, or they're going to sit on their hands for, for longer than it's necessary. So the real long-term money in massive quantities has got to come from the private sector. Thank you. Um, Dirk Mathiasen. I'm a writer and blogger on economic affairs for Russia and Ukraine. Um, First of all, I think I'd like to start by congratulating you, Ms. Jurescu, on the monetary management for Ukraine, because I think that's been fundamental to establish the positive real economy growth. I hope it continues. I have two quick questions. One is that the recent World Bank report highlighted a current account balance as one of the risks for the economy going forward, monetary management. And I wonder if you have any views on how that risk could be managed. Uh, second one is um, you mentioned briefly the, um, I think you mentioned it in terms of risk of early parliamentary elections. My impression is that parliamentary elections would help Ukraine at the moment because the, there's a need to dislodge the older interests and to reinforce the newer, more reform-minded interests. And they now have a few years of experience that they could use to leverage their advantages. Do you have any views on what the risks, are, the balance of risks are regarding early elections versus Sure. So first I have elections? to give monetary policy credit to my central bank governor. Uh, uh, so she's, she's done a great job. And I'll let the 
current account balance question go to Thanos. On elections, I actually view early elections as a negative for Ukraine, not a positive. Um, for, first of all, uh, taking it away from the political situation in Ukraine, I, I believe governments and uh, parliament leaders are elected uh, to do a job, and you need to give them time, especially in these very difficult cir circumstances, to do that job. Uh, when you're constantly running for re-election, you make worse decisions. I think, you know, U.S. House of Representatives, every two years, you have, we have our own example in the United States of how it affects policymaking when you're constantly running. It's, it encourages populism. And so I think early elections are disruptive to the time that we need to, to reform. I also think that in particular in Ukraine, uh, populism is a much greater danger. And I agree there are young reformers, and I, they are in parliament today, they are in government today, and that's why I said I want to give them the tools to, to, to work, uh, the tools to be strengthened uh, and to strengthen their efforts. But I do believe that the, if you look at the popularity ratings of different people, the, the, the political parties that, and political figures that are most popular tend to be populist. Uh, and I won't name names, but it's a fact. And they, they are popular because of what I said, false truths that are very easy uh, in a fatigued environment to sell to the population that you know, we should have uh, increase in wages, civil servant wages, uh, greater than inflation rates. Uh, we should uh, give away natural gas that's explored inside the country for free. Uh, these are unfortunately very, very popular and easy to swallow false truths. Um, and I think that right now is a great, great danger. I think instead of looking to elections, which again, we don't have a very developed, unfortunately, political party system in Ukraine. They're not necessarily based on ideologies or you know, conservatism versus liberalism versus you know, <clears throat> other, other ideas. Um, I, I think instead we need to give the tools to reformers and civil society and push forward. Elections will come. Ukraine is a country that has elections all the time. We just had presidential elections, parliamentary elections, local elections. We are a democracy on steroids to some extent. Uh, I, I, you know, I have no doubt Ukraine will continue to be a democracy and have elections. I just think we need time to reform. And reforms are painful. And I think the unfortunate combination of media, populism, fatigue, as I mentioned, and vested interests who are often behind the populism um, will, uh, I think, early elections will great, carry a greater risk than a benefit to Ukraine. I, I, I can add just a couple of <coughs> data points um, backing up what Natalie said. Uh, the most consistently pro-reform party in terms of voting in the ROD has been Yatsenyuk's party, and his ratings are down in the 1% area. Uh, the most popular parties in terms of recent gains in polls are Batkovshina, which is strongly populist, and to a lesser extent, Lyashko, the radical party. So the, the polls suggest that if you had early elections, you'd get a, a strongly populist Rada. Okay, now the next question the I promised to... Oh, sorry, please, yes. Look, the, the external, Ukraine's external position now is much stronger than it has been uh, in the recent past. And uh, the current account deficit from 9, 10%, that was a few years ago, now has gone down to 1 or 2%. Uh, the, the reserve position now has tripled compared to what it was in, uh, in late 2014, early 2015. So, so the, ex the, the external position has been uh, significantly stronger, improved. Um, 
But I think what one has seen is that this improvement in external position has happened because the imports have been compressed. And if you compress one part of it, it's sustainable. Energy imports are much lower now <coughs> than they used to be in the past. But also because incomes have been compressed. And therefore, one needs to wonder, so looking as the economy grows, imports naturally would start uh, growing again. And that's why all the importance for exports to continue to grow at a fast pace. Ukraine's exports have gone through uh, um, you know, a period of significant shocks, commodity prices. Although Ukraine got the benefit on the energy side, it got hit on, on <coughs> the very low steel prices in late 2015. Um, and uh, grain also so, like, you know, it goes through a very long period of, of uh, pricing adjusting. Uh, and therefore, th although the risks are there, it's, like, you know, it's important for all these reforms that Natalie and Morgan are talking about to make sure it's, like, you know, that the private sector is vibrant and, continue and exports uh, are strong enough. Now, Ukraine, in the meantime, has much stronger policies to cope with any kind of external shocks that may come. Uh, the exchange rate is floating. The reserve position is stronger. The fiscal position is much stronger as well. So uh, is it a risk in, and, and should the authorities worry and try to develop the private economy in the exports? Of course, that's like an ultimate objective. But is it an immediate risk for the economy? No, uh, it's not now. Okay, next question over there. Bart Marcois from Richard Richards Foundation. I'm particularly interested in the role that regional countries, central European countries can play in, a, in attracting investment to the region and including Ukraine in that as sort of a V4 plus one concept. Um, helping Western European and American companies navigate Ukraine and coming up with a win-win-win kind of scenario. Can you comment on that, please? Is there any thought being given to that sort of uh, process? Uh, former Prime Minister Yatsenyuk developed a kind of Visegrad uh, at a Prime Minister level uh, group with the Central European Prime Ministers. Uh, the current chairman of the parliament has done the same with the chairmen of the parliament of Central and Eastern Europe. So there is at a political level, I think, a, 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 a good recognition that this is an important group to develop for foreign policy. Uh, on, the, on the economic side, um, it's not as well coordinated, I would argue. Um, Slovakia is an incredibly important partner for Ukraine because of the reverse flow of gas. Uh, Slovakia is, uh, along with Germany, leading an effort to, with the unbundling, as I mentioned, of Naftogaz, and the potential um, introduction of private capital into the transit system, into the gas transit system, be a part of that and, and bring in investment because they have an interest in that transit continuing through to Slovakia. So there are very direct uh, economic interests. Poland is critical for Ukraine uh, in many, many ways. Um, trade is one, but also um, they're doing an enormous amount of educating of Ukrainians. Um, they're uh, very, very important in the EU discussions on sanctions. Um, but not all Central and East European countries have the same uh, level of support for Ukraine, unfortunately. Some of them <coughs> are more supportive of, of uh, our northern neighbor. Uh, and so it's a mixed bag. But no, there's no, I, I, I don't see a coordinated effort on the trade side yet. It could come. It should come. Uh, I'll see now. <coughs> right, right here. Bozidar Jalic from Lazard. Uh, Madam Yarescu, you speak with uh, such passion about uh, this fund and other uh, public policy issues. So we're just wondering whether your time at the Atlantic Council will see you again in government? 
up until today, I called you my friend, Bozidar. Um, <laughs> I, I will admit, you know, I, ha I have a passion for, for Ukraine. There's no question. I have a passion for public policy. Uh, and I believe there is uh, every, every opportunity to make this uh, uh, a very successful European country. Um, you know, um, if uh, the right time and place uh, existed, I would, of course, serve. Um, but for now, I think I can do quite a bit more uh, from the outside than necessarily from the inside. Thank you. Katya Sadova, Ukrainian Association of Washington State, and uh, currently at Georgetown University. Welcome, Pani Yaresko, and thank you uh, for your service so far to Ukraine. I have two questions. One is, uh, how do you see the private sector, both in Ukraine and the United States, through their co corporate social responsibility programs, perhaps, supporting this private public investment fund? And two, what leverage points do you see uh, that can be applied both to the Ukrainian administration as well as RADA in order to move the reforms forward? So you called it leverage points. I call it conditionality. Um, so basically, that, that's the whole idea, is to, to agree on uh, these reforms as we've agreed with the IMF on reforms, uh, as we agreed with the World Bank uh, for development loans on, on reforms, and build them into a larger program um, the only significant difference is I'm thinking more on the structural side, uh, which the IMF is more on the macro side. Not entirely, I know, but more so. Um, and um, to me, that's the leverage. Uh, I, I will be honest with you. I, I fear uh, that, you know, for example, the United States just provided its last uh, $1 billion credit guarantee. Where is the future of U.S. leverage? That's another reason why I think we need to relook at most of the seven and a half billion of bilateral, multilateral support raised in this package in 2015, early 2015, has been drawn down. And um, I, I think, again, not in a negative way, just to be very clear, but in a positive way, it provides tools for those who want to reform. And so that, that is the leverage that I, that I think uh, we, we need to create. In terms of CSR, I mean, I haven't thought it through. It's, it's, there's probably quite a bit of, of support that, that business could, could do through CSR, but also, again, through, through private sector investment. So again, PPP would, would, would and should be a very important part of this, this investment fund. Dr. Abish, you want to address this? <coughs> okay. uh, the question right here. Oh, okay, no, right. Yeah. This gentleman right here. <coughs> Hi, Lee Avershow of LAA Consulting. Uh, question for both uh, uh, Pani Iresco and uh, Morgan. I want to tie three uh, issues all in one, credit trading, uh, previous corruption, and government reform. Uh, Ukraine has been very successful in uh, taking steps in reforming credit trading, especially in restructuring some of the euro bond issue payments, et cetera. It has been very successful. However, there are still, uh, and that relates to investment from medium to small-sized companies, there's still a matter of unresolved debts from the previous administrations, from the present administration, and Ukraine has been taking steps to try to resolve those. Uh, however, it has been very slow. Uh, one of my clients have encountered that in Ukraine, where uh, it almost creates an impression that some of the Ukrainian companies beginning 
not to long for the previous years of corruption, but where they saw it as before at least things were done uh, transparently or non-transparently. Now with the new staff, new personnel in the ministries, a lot of times uh, issues are resolved very slowly, sometimes non-responsively, not in a corrupt way, but just it seems like uh, the government organizations are going through very dramatic transformation, which creates slowdown on payments, on uh, securing people's investments, things like that. What do you see as the further steps to where the government reform leads to streamlined operations in such issues as payments to foreign companies, debt restructuring, everything that can impact <coughs> rating, uh, not just in a financial sense, but in a reputational sense? So I, I think you really have to divide uh, government from uh, business. And uh, in essence, that's the good news is that we've started to do that in Ukraine. Uh, the Ukrainian government, unless it provided a government guarantee, is not responsible for the debts of state-owned enterprises, private businesses, local governments. Uh, in the past, uh, in, often in a corrupt way, through influencing or through politics or through other, you know, the government would actually reimburse something that they were not responsible for. Um, but there really is a differentiation today. And unless there's a government guarantee, don't look to the government to provide repayment. And I get, and I had as Minister Knight to this day, get complaints about so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so didn't pay. The government should pay. The government should not pay. It's not the government's responsibility. I'm sorry. On government guaranteed debt, uh, it's different. And on government guaranteed debt, we are actually not in, uh, in uh, default. And, and we are making payments. And it's budgeted. Uh, and it's uh, an unfortunate often large sums for, I don't know what, but the government is not in default on any of its government guaranteed debt, even for state-owned enterprises uh, in the past. Um, so you really need to differentiate the two. In terms of the efficiency of the Ukrainian government, uh, civil service reform is ongoing. It's going to take much too long. Uh, it has to be married with increased salaries, but also with making the government smaller. We can't increase salaries with the size of the government that we have today to a reasonable level. We can't afford it. Uh, so there has to be the two pieces together. Uh, that means fewer government institutions, not just you know everybody. We, we've already done that. When we were in government, we cut across the board 30% of the fiscal service. We cut across the board 20% uh, of uh, the central government. 42,000 42, individuals were cut in 2015. Um, but you can't do that. In, a, in, a, in that type of way going forward. You have to make decisions. You know, someone may need more staffing. Someone may need less. Some institutions don't need to exist. And so you need to start doing this in a much more credible way. But I, I think um, it's, it's, it's a bureaucracy. And I've been in both. Uh, I, I worked for John in one bureaucracy, and, and I've worked in the other bureaucracy. Uh, you know, it's a bureaucracy, and it is hard to, to, to change. It's big, and it's, it's uh, very hard to move. Uh, I think. Civil service reform is the beginning. Uh, I just wish it would move faster. But on, on, on the debt issues that you're talking about, I, I really ask you to be very careful because if it's not government guaranteed, you really can't, can't ask uh, the government to reimburse it. It's just not possible. One problem with the Ukraine legal system and in terms of all these outstanding lawsuits that get passed back and forth for years is they don't have the right to negotiate settlements. 
in the United States and many other countries, maybe three-fourths of our lawsuits are settled through negotiation. We just talked to the head of the tax administration last week when he was here, and he said he doesn't have the right to settle anything. It all got to be settled in the courts. And many times um, you owe somebody $800,000, and the, the government says, we don't have the money, so just throw it to another court or, or continue the, some way through the process. So this could be subject to some corruption, but they need to start moving and giving the, the uh, legal system more right to, uh, to negotiate settlements and not just drag them on uh, forever, which is very frustrating, of course, to the private uh, business community. And of course, we would totally agree that they better not be issuing a lot of government guarantees. <laughs> that doesn't work. I did, I did fail to answer the part on the private sector. We did just adopt legislation that we developed when we were in government, but the new government pushed it through uh, on um, something which is often called the Istanbul approach. Now we call it the Ukraine approach, which allows for banks to come together and do basically, um, without going through bankruptcy court, a uh, agreed type of um, insolvency um, negotiation. I'm sorry? out-of-court uh, uh, resolution of debts. And that's new. It just got adopted in the last part of the IMF program just in the last few months, this summer, if I remember correctly. And um, it, it allows you to avoid the courts. It also allows companies that may be uh, illiquid but solvent to be able to uh, negotiate with their creditors out of court and find a solution to, to debts. And so that's, that's new, and that can be used now legally in Ukraine. Question over here. <coughs> Mr. Oresko, it's great to see you in Washington, and at the risk of being unfriended, I hope some, uh, the time will come when you will become Prime Minister. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, look, my question is, uh, all, all the well-meaning and technically correct reforms that are being pushed through in Ukraine are good, but the devil is in details. And um, for the past couple of years, seeing the details from afar, they scare me. I'll give you one example. Um, the uh, marketization of uh, communal gas was a good thing, okay? You, you, put, you, you brought the prices up, you created the incentive to, um, to, save, to save energy. However, that was paired with actually subsidy, you know, directed subsidies to needy individuals who could not afford the new tariffs. Because if they can't afford it, they, they're not going to pay anything. They're going to pay zero. Uh, what I saw in the past, I think it was a couple of weeks or maybe a couple of months, is that actually those subsidies were reversed. People, uh, the, the subsidies that were on individuals' bills as they paid, were reversed and put back, and the, and then you know these these people yeah, received bills and they had to pay. Yeah, let's let's go. The, the issue the issue is is actually one that needs to be uh, very much a part of the ongoing reforms. You're absolutely right. It's not perfect, and the devil's in the details. When we first raised uh, tariffs, we raised them to 50% of import cost recovery. It was about a 450% increase. We had to very quickly, and we did this. It was extraordinarily difficult to do that. Uh, and when we did it, uh, we had to put a subsidy plan and program, uh, program in place very quickly. And we made it very broad. 
And we did it in a way that was the easiest given the time we had before the heating season. And this subsidy program is not a monetary program. And that's a problem. Uh, it doesn't actually have an energy efficiency effect per se. Um, but we didn't have time to do the monetization, debit cards and everything else. That's now kind of the next step, and I believe that's very critical. But so what happened was the subsidies were created on the basis of a usage, some, you know, seven cubic meters per something, whether or not a household used it. And at the end of the season, as you described, there was an overhang. It wasn't going to the individuals. It was going to the Oblast gas companies. And so it had to be reversed, the part that wasn't used, because it wasn't monetized. It wasn't the family getting it. It was the Oblast gas companies that were getting it. And so the part that wasn't actually based on usage got reversed and will continue to be in the budget for this heating season. But that whole system is very imperfect, is the bottom line, not to go into details, because it doesn't have a monetization. If instead you had a subsidy for, the, for those most in need with the debit card for the heating season, and you said, here's your five and a half cubic meters per month, if you use less at the end of the heating season, whatever's left on your debit card, go buy pharmaceuticals, go buy food, go you know, take your kid out to McDonald's, whatever you want to do. Uh, you would have an incentive to use less, and you wouldn't be providing any subsidies to the Oblast gas, uh, gas system. Instead, you'd be providing it to people. And so I think that's the next step in the subsidy program. But again, bureaucracies move slowly, uh, and because we needed to do that in a very quick time, we overshot a little bit, I believe, in both who gets subsidies uh, we should probably make it much more directed to those in need. Um, and we also overshot, I think, in terms of the amount per household, the standards. But it was better for us, as you can well imagine, to overshoot and get this reform done than to undershoot, have people, you know, freezing cold or not able to get a subsidy and have the reform fail. So I actually believe that, you know, on balance, it was better to get it done in an imperfect way and now perfect it. <clears throat> of course. I understand. Okay. Yeah. Last question in the corner. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Andrei Sitova. I'm a Russian reporter here in Washington, D.C. Uh, Madam Minister, nice to see you again. Uh, th thanks for the host. Uh, uh, the question, you, you mentioned that uh, Ukraine is not uh, in default at this point, but it is in arrears uh, on an official debt, as uh, the IMF uh, recognizes. Uh, it's in litigation. My question is uh, about the uh, German uh, initiative for resolving the issue out of court. Uh, how promising do you think that is? Uh, what next steps do you think uh, should, should be taken by the two sides? Thank you. I'm uh, extraordinarily grateful for the German initiative to act as an intermediary. Uh, Minister Schoble is a very esteemed colleague, and I can't tell you how much I appreciate him keeping that dialogue open. The next step is to keep the dialogue open, to meet for the ministers. Unfortunately, they were unable, I understand, to meet here during the annual meetings. Uh, the next step is for a meeting, which I understand could take place uh, later this year. So I think it's an important thing to keep the dialogue going. Of course, um, Litigation is a separate issue, and I won't comment on it. No, I'm not involved whatsoever. I'm a private citizen. Okay. Okay. I'd like to thank uh, the minister for our time and our other guests.